Welcome back to the Horror Sanctum. I'm Jay with John and TJ. Uh, and this week we're joined by writer, actor, producer, filmmaker, uh, and his company, Reverend Entertainment, creates content for Paramount, Shout Factory, Scream Factory, Arrow Video, Vinegar Syndrome, and more. Uh, I could go on, but uh, we don't have all day. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Justin Beam. Justin, welcome to the Sanctum. Yeah, thanks guys for having me on. I appreciate it. It's so funny to hear you say actor. I've done, I've done it's no, in there it's on there where where imdb because, okay well i've i've had like two second parts in some friends films where they're like hey you want to die in a scene i'm like absolutely i want to die in a scene <laughs> hey that's that about counts. the extent of it yeah hey that counts to me if i if i did that it would be on my resume um <laughs> so so justin with reverend Inter, uh, reverend entertainment you specialize in special features and commentary on feature films and i'm just curious how does one get into that line of work? For me, it began, it goes back to when I was writing for film magazines like Fangoria, Famous Monsters of Filmland, Delirium, Scream out of the UK. It really began with Fango back in the day, though. And um, it was kind of the last vestige of the old Fangoria before it moved to Texas. And it's had a couple different iterations since then. But editor Chris Alexander came in and brought me in with him. And we we had a, a wild time writing these insane stories because he really wanted to go for more retrospective historical approach to the pieces that were in the magazine because of the Internet. It's like you can't you can't break news anymore in print. So uh, so that that is where the journey kind of began for me. And through that, I ended up interviewing a producer, Malik Akkad, with trancus films which is the parent company of the halloween franchise and malik and i ended up hitting it off really well and we ended up becoming business partners and we co-founded a nonprofit together and that led to me i was dealing one of my many hats there was to dealing with new media which is physical distribution of our films and i ended up getting uh, doing the blu-rays on halloween four and five when they made the transition from dvd to blu-ray format and that, I guess, caught the interest of the Shout Factory guys when they were just getting set to launch Scream Factory, which hadn't happened yet. And they approached me at a convention and had a list of films. And they're like, hey, do you, you want to have some fun? And at the top of that list was, of all things, Tank Girl, which at mm -hmm. the time I was in the middle of or the beginning of working on a book with the director, Rachel, about the making of that film. And so I immediately zeroed in on that. And then from there, it was just, it really was off to the races. And um, working with Shout over the years led to other companies. And it's just kind of blossomed since then. So I'm curious, you know, you uh, you probably are, I would assume you're probably close to the same age as us and probably have a lot of the same interest with horror. What kind of got you into, I guess, filmmaking, horror, what really got you into that genre and really film in general when you were younger? Do you, do you have like a, a perennial like memory with that? It always seemed to be something that I was, I was completely mystified and impressed by everything as a kid. I had no 
frame of judgment on, on movies. I was just so thrilled in the era of the video store boom to be able to see all this variety of stuff. And so I was an avid renter. My parents, we had memberships everywhere in town, everywhere from U-Haul facilities to Best Buy used to rent videotapes and stuff. So we were renting from everywhere. But really, there were some books when I was um, a kid that were hugely influential. The oh, yeah. Crestwood House monster books. We, we had those at the library in my school, and we all used to fight over those. Totally. I mean, because they these didn't exist outside of libraries. They were never mm -hmm. made commercially available. But this, but the the deal for those who haven't had a chance to see them is they featured a different monster, I guess you could say, uh, and it told the story with stills from the films and things like that. Didn't so some company a few years back re-release those? Not re-release. There was an, there was another company. Well, actually, there have been several different iterations of even Crestwood over the years, but there was also another company that did something very similar. It's called like Cinegraphics or something where they did essentially script reprints with images. Okay. But the cool thing about this was before I could see the films, before I could, I even had access to like the universal classics, I was reading about them. And so when it came time to finally get my hands on the tapes and watch them, I felt like I was already familiar with them, already had my favorites. And so I was really immersed from day one. And then when I discovered Fangoria and Famous Monsters magazine as a kid, that blew the doors wide open on it because it completely lifted the veil on the process. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, as fellow fans, all of us mm -hmm. in this room, we are as into the mechanics as we are in the end result. And I think that's something that's born out of access to those magazines and like the video zone segments at the end of full moon tapes those kinds of things were just hugely influential on getting me interested to a deeper level in film. But it took, I mean, it, it was a total accident that I ended up in the field because it always felt like something on a different universe. Like it was on an island somewhere that was not accessible. And it's, I still pinch myself every day like, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, it's interesting. A lot of a lot of the companies now, especially like the ones you work work with, and I, I always think the grandfather of this stuff is like Anchor Bay. I don't know if you yeah. agree with that. And hundred percent. Did you have any? Did you ever work with Anchor Bay, or was that before your time? I wondered if you had ever done anything with them right towards right. the end. Yeah, yeah. Anchor Bay. I mean, they. I I know there were earlier incarnations of something that was similar to this. It really began. This rolls back to laser discs. Many of the early Blu-rays that came out were just repressed tiny laser disc releases for all intents with special features. That great The Thing um, documentary that's on Carpenter's The Thing, that was born in a laser disc years prior, mm -hmm. for an example. But so this this special feature stuff goes back a ways, but really I feel like right with you, it was Anchor Bay that introduced me not only to the realm of really special features, but also widescreen presentation of films. And also all this European stuff. I had no access to Argento, Fulci, to any of these guys until Anchor Bay started putting out those sexy clamshell releases. You remember those? Oh, that yeah. were mm -hmm. widescreen. Yeah. You take the slip out and it has all the text on the back. And I'm like, I, just, I couldn't get enough of it. So, And then the only two titles I did for them were Halloween 4 and 5. 
Okay. And then after that, the stars transition, I think happened shortly after that. And then I wasn't a part of their universe anymore. Yeah. It was kind of like a brilliant time for all that to happen in the, in the nineties because anchor Bay, like as a kid, that's kind of what introduced me to a lot of the slasher films and the Italian films. And, yeah. you know, at that time with screen kind of bringing the genre back in a way, it was weird how it all was just sort of at the same period um so yeah it's always fascinating i always like to ask about anchor bay because it's just like this forgotten thing that was so legendary and i feel like every company now sort of you know is inspired by that well um, i think that they they introduced a lot yeah. that we now sort of take for granted on these releases and that goes through to their dvd releases they would even do things like a halloween limited edition that has a stamped number like mm-hmm. 100 of 200 or whatever it might well, and be. And then they did those big tins that had like yeah. a CD case in them. And those were all numbered. I used to have some of those. It's great. I mean, that was really an, in, that took fandom for all of us to a completely different level. And it's, it's too bad that they aren't really in the game anymore. I know that Michael Felsher with red shirt pictures was, if you're familiar with him, Oh yeah. if, you, if you're not, you got to definitely follow him on social media. He's, he was really big with anchor Bay. I kind of consider him the modern godfather of this stuff because he's done it for everybody. He's been doing it for so long and uh, he just remains a a real outspoken advocate for the genre and for this kind of documentary work as well. But he's the guy, if you ever have a chance to bend his ear at a convention or something, he has stories from his anchor Bay days that are great. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, um, I follow his, uh, I'm always getting on his auctions. He doesn't do them as much now, but his Facebook oh. auctions where he'll sell off stuff. And yeah, yeah. Slip, Slippies, he's he's funny. Yeah. He's, but um, I, I did, you know, I'm curious about this because I saw on your release slate, um, you've worked on so many things, but mm-hmm. I saw you were attached to Slashers from TerraVision. Yeah. Um, Could you talk about like what that was like? So we reviewed that movie on the show that and, was a crazy ass movie i'd never heard of and until i'm pretty John sure when yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure when they announced the release we all pre-ordered it i know john yeah, and i did, I did. Yeah. definitely yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's a it, i think so many people have that same experience of you know that's a movie i had never heard of but when they watch it it is so immersive mm-hmm. the world that it drops you into in this kind of haunt but for real on this game the game show scenario i mean that the television situation for me is really one of many hats and i'm i'm where for other labels and studios i am in the special feature realm specifically usually for television i do lots of technical stuff too so assembly of different cuts of films creating trailers for movies that may not have a trailer uh, doing a lot of the audio mixing, um, deliverable packages to theaters, to different presses that we have them printed by. I mean, it's really, there's so many different duties that I serve in. So for slashers, I didn't shoot anything for that specifically myself, but I assembled the stuff that we did have. So the special feature interviews came in and I cut them together. And, um, and then, built out stuff for the rest of the disc like lining sinking the commentaries and all that kind of stuff yeah i think it's and i correct me if i'm wrong i believe you and brad henderson work with television a lot i know he's with that a lot right is that correct yeah it, it's really brad brad and ryan graveface who runs 
uh, television records for a long time. And he also has some museums that are amazing that you have to experience. You look up Graveface Records yeah. and that'll lead you to all of his links. But Ryan's, the it's his company, but really TerraVision is Brad's baby. And then uh, it's me as sort of a hands-on guy. But then they have artists, Chloe, Ryan's wife, handles mm -hmm. the website, the sales and distribution side of things. It's a real family affair on that. And it's it's a treasure to be part of. Everyone's so passionate and driven by that passion. Not like, oh, we need to be the biggest. We need to be the whatever. It's like, no, we want to give people something that will mean something to them. And we want to do it in a way that's presented with such sincerity and consideration. And I love working with them. It's great. I'd yeah. be interested in when they decided to do the Slashers release and how close it was to the release of our episode. <laughs> I like to think that we had something to do with the new popularity. And I'll ask. Maybe it was. I don't know. I, I know that Brad's been a huge fan of that film for a long time. And everything you see when you go to the Terrorvision site mm -hmm. is is something that Brad fell in love with or Ryan fell in love with. And odds are it was Brad. And Brad comes from a great background with Vinegar Syndrome where he was doing acquisitions and bringing all kinds of eclectic stuff to the table. And here he gets just carte blanche. I mean, he finds these things and pick, you know, the company picks up the license. And next thing you know, we're doing deluxe releases of stuff that blows my mind. I'm like, man, how are we even going to find this film? And then a week later, Brad's like, Oh, found it. Uh, we got it now. <laughs> it's coming from Indonesia. It'll be here in two days and I'll have a scan to you in a week. And I'm like, this is incredible. He has, that guy is some kind of a savant for tracking down sort of fringe cinema. And I love him for it. Yeah. I, I saw that you had um, hollow gate on the docket and that's, yeah. that movie is memorable to me because there's a scene where golden retrievers attack a guy on a uh, golf cart. Yeah. Oh, uh, do you ever just like, and I, I know you work on a lot of these special features and there's probably a lot of stuff that you, work on that you can't talk about um mm -hmm. do you ever find yourself when you're working on these with these movies like thinking you know what else is there to uncover with these gems because it's it's like every year they find something different that was like a lost gem do you ever think that there's gonna it's gonna be harder to find those or is there always gonna be something out there i remain perpetually surprised by that I really do. And that's not just in the, the things that we find relating to the films. It's also in the films themselves. I've been a part of some releases of things that I never thought would see the light of day. And on Vinegar Syndrome, that's a label that constantly will announce things that I'm like, I never thought anybody even thought about this film. Like I remember when, when they did Bloodhook, which is oh, an yes. absolute yeah. obsession of mine, Jim Allen's Bloodhook. My buddy Jake and I, we always swore like, yeah, oh, there's one movie that'll never get picked up, you know, by any label. And when they announced it, we're just like, both, oh, God, man, it's of course, I had nothing to do with it on its release. But it was just an example of one of these fringe titles that you never thought would see the light of day. But that's with these things, as I'm finding in the discussions on the television stuff, for example, a lot of this shot on video, these were kind of run and gun productions. And the people who were associated with them many times didn't think they'd ever be seen, let alone be getting a a, a new master and a re-release 25 years later. And it's kind of funny the gauging the reactions of people when you reach out to them. It's either, oh my gosh, that would be amazing. I would, 
that was crazy. I would love to talk about it. Or it's, I don't talk about that. <laughs> and there've been right. a few times where people are like, you know, that's not really <laughs> a part of my past that I talk a lot about. But the, but what, what I will say in all of this from Paramount and Robert Redford to whatever spectrum you want to look at this on, everyone's stories are fascinating. Yeah. Cinema is such an insane symphony. And the fact that any film gets made is kind of magical. And the, when they come across well, it's even more unbelievable. And no matter what role someone played on set, the stories are almost always fascinating. And so to your question, the discoveries are eternal. It's, it's really kind of an evergreen process of, of unveiling things because as long as you can get someone new in the seat, you're going to get some good stories usually. Definitely. Um, I, I've got to ask because I, I was looking at your credits and I remember watching these and I realize now you worked on them. Um, my favorite film is Big Trouble in the Little China. Oh, yeah. And um, I was just so fascinated with that Blu-ray because they had so many interviews and and there's a lot of stories about that movie, like how there's all these theories about the studio not wanting it to be successful and things like that. What was that like finding everybody on that movie? Because obviously oh. you get the big hitters, but what was that process like just finding them and getting to speak to everybody on that? I got to say that was an absolute dream project and I had no breaks on it and you can see it on the disc. That's why there's like a second disc, I think just for special features. Cause I kept turning stuff in and uncovering more and more people. And I, I completely blew through the budget in, you know, almost immediately that I had to work with, but I was determined because historically the stories behind the making of that film had been pretty much relegated to Carpenter and Kurt. And as much as I love Kurt Russell, don't get me wrong. And as much as I love John Carpenter, man, the heart of that film is in everyone around them too. There's a, there's a lot of, from so many people. And when I reach out to someone like Carter Wong, mm -hmm. who's an absolute legend, right? He's like Elvis Presley in Hong Kong for him to agree to do an interview. And I remember when he, we had to do it remotely because he couldn't leave Hong Kong because there were riots happening at the time there. It was wild, but he was really insistent on doing it. And he was so grateful at the end because he's like, I've never been included before. Wow. And that was the story over and over again. Peter Kwong, all these guys that you bring in the chair and they're, some of them are even in pretty bad health, but they're determined. Like, no, I really want to come. And just for the chance to have their little stamp on the legacy of the film that they made a huge stamp on all of our lives with on screen. And so for that one, I, I was working with an editor and I, I'm sure that it shows in how they were assembled that I'm, we had to go so fast through this mountain of material. So it's not like the most finely tuned interviews, but in a way, I kind of love the fact that they're all super long because you're just in the room with the interview subject. And that's something that I don't usually get the chance to offer. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants everything pretty concise and clean cut and tight. But for whatever reason on that one, I don't know if Shout wasn't watching close enough or what, but I really got to just put it all out there. And it was a tremendous honor to spend time with all those people and to be part of that release. Uh, that That remains one of the absolute top experiences, let alone releases that I've been a part of. I'm glad you enjoy it. That 
it's 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 a, a real treasured experience for me. Yeah, it was great. Uh, all the interviews. Um, and, you know, the thing about that movie, and especially with John Carpenter, is I love John. I, I, I've i always loved John Carpenter. I know he's grumpy. Um, I think with him, it's like when you ask him about movies a lot of times, he's almost like a, a war veteran in a way, the way he talks about things. Like he doesn't, mm. he kind of keeps things close to the chest in a way. Yeah. So it's nice to get all these other stories because you know, I'm sure there's things he could say that he wouldn't, but getting all these other actors and people involved, like you said, you get such a bigger picture of what things were like. So I really yeah. thought that was great. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And I think John, I mean, really, because I've, I've ended up doing a bunch of stuff with him over the years. And I remember an early conversation I had with him for Fangoria. We did this word association interview and it was this massive career spanning thing where I'd like throw out a name or a film title, or a producer, or whatever, a location. And at the end of it, <clears throat> I'm like, tell me about John Carpenter, the director, and then John Carpenter, the man. And he's like, well, the director is a guy who got to have some fun. I'm paraphrasing, got to make some pretty cool movies with some great people, but never really had the shot. And then he says, the man is a guy who never really got the girls and who just kind of wants to relax and chill. And this was probably like 10 years ago, at least, that I, that this conversation took place, maybe even 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. Even then, like people joke about now how he's shooting movies from his couch and playing video games all the time and whatever. He's oh, very open about it. But um, I think... Uh, I think your point about a war veteran is really interesting because I think in a way he is, he told me that he, when, when he was making portrait of an invisible man, that movie or memoirs of an invisible man that, that made him want to quit filmmaking. That experience was so brutal on him mm -hmm. that it made him completely second guess everything that he had been working for. Cause the experience with chase was so bad. Everything around that film was just poison. And that was after getting dropped by the studio after the failure of the thing. It just felt like it was punch after punch. And to this day, it's like, who's funding Carpenter movies now? The last thing he did was the, the war. Ward. Yeah. That's yeah. a long time ago. And, and would you say that's a signature Carpenter film? So I think he, I don't know. I, I just, I, I wish somebody who had the money would just walk up to John and he's not the only filmmaker that I would point to and wish this for mm -hmm. and just say, Whatever the budget, whatever the story, let's do it. Right. Kind of like the SpectreVision guys did with Panos Cosmatos. They're like, what have you got? And he's and he's like, I got this thing called Mandy. And they're like, let's do it. And then they shoot this insane, phantasmagoric mindfuck of a movie and put it in theaters. <laughs> that's that's the ultimate belief, right? Well, where is that for Carpenter? Where is that for Dante? Where is yeah. that for all these greats that are still out there able to kick one out and show us how it's done? That's what I'm hoping happens for John at some point. Well, you, you and us all, uh, yeah. and, and you would think with, with a career and of, of films that, that largely have become cult films kind of after they've had their, their runs, mm -hmm. uh, he was always a guy that was ahead of the curb. You would think that it would be easier 
<laughs> to get something off the ground and 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 please throw money at that guy <laughs> that guy yeah. that made the the number of awesome movies that he made all in a row yeah uh, that were all appreciated more after their time unfortunately um but totally. speaking about speaking about carpenter though keeping on that on that trend uh you made a documentary about halloween called you can't kill the boogeyman mm-hmm. which is it might be to me the best halloween documentary and that's coming from someone who's owned just about every major release from all the old anchor bays all the way through to the the current versions and i have watched every featurette every documentary on halloween halloween is my favorite film there's a lot out there (laughs) there are a lot and i've watched most of them more than once uh it's it's probably my favorite documentary uh on halloween uh especially especially of the last you know certainly 20 years um Tell, tell us about how you got involved with that project and what that has meant to your career. That was a huge, man, that, that moment was such a wild time for me because I was moving into new realms at Trancus and there was supposed to be another Halloween film coming out after Rob Zombie's second Halloween. And it ended up being mired down in all this studio gunk. And so it wasn't happening. And so we came up with the idea of putting the original back in theaters again, which hadn't, it, like now it's every year, it's back out again and again and again. Well, it, that was not the case then. In fact, I had a hard time finding a theater chain or even a distributor that wanted to play ball with it because they're like, this movie's from 1978. They just didn't see the value in it because these boutique bookings and the Fathom events, that didn't exist then. It took screen vision. If you remember Screen Vision, they used to do trivia before movies where you would text the answers yeah, into a certain yeah. number. And I think you got points and stuff. Mm-hmm. Screen Vision just happened to like the right guy answer the phone who happens to be a horror nut, Mike. And he's like, oh, my gosh, this sounds amazing. Let's try to make this happen. And we did. But what they wanted was a little bit of bonus content for it. They wanted extra incentive to get people in the theaters. Again, because this boutique booking thing is kind of untested, largely at that point. So they wanted some additional material for it. And so Malik and I were talking, he turns to me, he's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, initially the idea was let's do a thing on the character of the shape. That was my original concept for it. The being that is Michael Myers, the shape, what it is in the films. I wanted to bring it. I was, I was reaching out to all the actors who had played Michael and I was, it was going to be, because that's the one side of it that hasn't ever really had the light directly shown on it, at least until that point. And in the end, I don't remember who made the call, but it had to be transitioned. And so in the last moment, it kind of became more about the cultural presence of the boogeyman around the world and how that transitions into Michael and the States and the shape with the Halloween franchise and what that's meant over the years to fans and to cinema. And I still brought some people in for some interviews on it and pulled a little bit of vintage footage and stuff. Got to cut a new trailer for it, which was weird and wild. And I brought in, we found this kid, Austin Hinderleiter, who did the poster design for us, which remains, I see it at conventions all the time still. It's the orange 
one you'll see where Michael's, there's like a white frame around it. Michael's kind of popping out of the frame a little bit with the knife. And Austin did a tremendous job. And he's still getting hit up all the time from people who who love the poster for the re-release. And it's, um, so anyway, it, it was a tremendous honor to then go to the Chinese theater for the premiere of Halloween 1978 and sit down and then have, boom, like, the the title card comes up with the definition of boogeyman and i brought in my buddy andrew devoff who was the gin and the wishmaster series oh nice. yeah yeah okay. love that and, guy. And, oh he's amazing and andy did the voiceover cuz who has a better voice right like is there a better voice in all of horror your wish as you <laughs> yeah. wish yeah he's amazing <laughs> so and that was a trip i brought this other my composer pal tim in he did the music for it but also did the recording with Andy and it's me, Tim and Andy in this little sound booth. And we have my script big up on the screen and here's Andy reading these lines and I'm hearing it in the headphones and I'm just closing my eyes. Like, what is my life? This is absolutely incredible. And he would do the most incredible take. He'd be like, he's poured into the frame, like black. Blah, 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 blah. And then he'd turn to me and go, I think I can do better. And I'm like, yeah, how? What do you mean you could do? There's no way you could do better. That was incredible. It was amazing. It was really amazing. And to your question about what it's done for my career, um, I still get asked about it. There was was a time when that was kind of all I had as a calling card to a certain extent outside those commentaries on Halloween 4 and 5. And so early on. I mean, it meant, it meant everything to me. The opportunity meant everything. Malik opening the door to me at Trancus meant everything. It completely transformed my life and, and uh, in every way. So yeah, thank you for your comments on it. And it was a really special thing. That's awesome. And God bless Malik Akkad for keeping, keeping that franchise alive. Uh, even Keeps chugging long after his, his father's tragic passing. Yeah. Um, so, and I know you've you've done some commentaries with even some of the people who've played the shape on some of the different mm-hmm. movies, like Don Shanks and people like that. But who's some of your favorite uh, people that you've done audio commentaries with? I try not to get involved with them unless I'm asked to, or unless there's a real reason for it to occur. Because mm-hmm. my big theory with mm-hmm. everything that I do is I really I prefer it to be unless it's something really old. I prefer to have the people who are there present. Like I don't put a bunch of talking heads and stuff hypothesizing about what happened or I heard that Mm -hmm. so-and-so had a problem with whatever. I just wanted it to be as pure as it can be. There's already, that's one of the great things about documentary is you get 10 people in the chair, you're going to have 10 realities poured into the same narrative anyway. So you don't need to mess with that math in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I, there have been a few where I've had to come in on them, like on body bags. We had, uh, I was teaming up Carpenter with uh, Stacy Keach on the eye or on hair with uh, Robert Carradine on the gas station. And then it was going to be Toby Hooper and John on the eye, but Toby ended up not being able to make it. So in the end, it uh, I was in, it literally was the day of that I found out. And, um, and so I was there with Sandy Carpenter, John's wife, Sandy King. And 
as they're doing these other tracks, Sandy's kind of telling me the stories in addition to what they're saying on the track. And I'm like, do you want to just for the last piece here, how about just the two of us talk about that? Let's yeah. talk about John, the creative and your partner and what your world is like around him and seeing him live with this. So that's one where it was kind of out of necessity that we had to dive in that way, but it ended up working out perfectly. And some of the um, documentary stuff on, on body bags, uh, that that features her too yeah. did that come out of that commentary or what what came first no the, the interviews were first she was always going to be a part of it for sure uh, that was an early co-production with them and so i thought that her voice would be really special and to have she was a producer there. on that right yeah exactly and they brought in i mean everyone you're seeing on screen in body bags short of toby's sequence bit with the eye is they're friends of john and Sandy. So, I mean, it's really sort of a family affair. And it was thrilling for me when Robert Carradine walked in. Oh, yeah. I mean, Revenge of the Nerds. I'm a total (laughs) Revenge of the Nerds mark. And when he walked in, I don't get starstruck, man. When he walked in the room and extended his (laughs) hand, I was. I was giddy. And was, Hollywood um, royalty. I mean, John oh, yeah. Carradine, what, yeah. what he was. I mean, he was the first guy to take up the Dracula cape after Bela. Absolutely. And I mean, the legacy goes so many ways with that family. And that whole track ended up being just so wonderful. John and Stacy catching up. They hadn't seen each other in so many years. And it's just great to hear that. That's um, one of my ones... favorite Carpenter audio commentaries. So kudos oh, cool. on pulling that together and, and making it so fun and, and different from story to story. Oh, yeah. I was so glad that he was open to that because that's a long day for oh, him yeah. to sit through all that, you know. Uh, but other ones like The Town That Dreaded Sundown was an early one that I did. And I brought in the case historian, James Presley, who was writing a book that's now released on the Phantom Killer in the Texarkana area. And so I kind of spoke to the film. He spoke to the case. And that made for a nice kind of back and forth. That was a really early one. Um, the one on Piranha was oh, really yeah. special to my heart. That was with, it was supposed to be Roger Corman with Dick Miller. Wow. And I had been friends with Dick and Laney Miller for some time prior to that. And one of the greatest yeah, never... character actors of all time. Yeah, amazing. Have you seen amazing. that documentary on who's who's that guy or that guy, Dick Miller? Oh, that yeah. Guy Dick yeah. Miller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's scratch, that's like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, oh, yeah. his, he's he was omnipresent, especially in the world of Corman. And they were both so excited to be on a track together. Um, and the uh, without getting too deep into the story, but uh Dick ended up falling ill just prior to production and passing away. Mm. And it was uh, Roger and I just sort of put our heads together and let's forge ahead. And uh, I still had in the studio, I asked the engineer to leave the table, mic and headphones and chair there for Dick as though he was with us. I mean, it was a really emotional day. And then Lainey showed up with their granddaughter with her, which is Dick's then now widow at this time at the studio unexpected and sat there outside listening the whole time. And, um, and then we made it a real celebration, not just of Piranha, but a career conversation with Roger that celebrated all of Dick's contributions over the years and how integral he was to what 
Roger was doing. Because when I say omnipresent, he really was. But they were just two young guys with all the energy in the world and no filters on what not to do that dove headfirst into this business together and made a lot of magic. And um, that one was really precious too. Even though it didn't work out how we wanted it, uh, in the end, somehow it was perfect. You yeah. know, it's it's funny you mentioned um, the town that dreaded sundown. So I um, I recently drove through Texarkana like a few weeks back, and oh. I just I just couldn't help but think how odd that is driving through because that's a real story. You know, all yeah. that happening, and and it still is very rural there. Like it doesn't. I was expecting it to look very modern. It still looks mm-hmm. kind of rural for even a southern bigger city. Um, you know, I know you worked on, I think, did you work on the uh, Boggy Creek special yeah. features? It's yep. That's kind of a weird thing with Charles Pierce, because as a kid, I remember the first thing I saw of him <clears throat> was uh, Boggy Creek 2, the Mystery Science Theater thing. And so I had no idea. I could quote the whole thing. I had no idea until I was like 20 that this guy had done Town the Dread Sundown. He apparently wrote the speech for Dirty Harry, like all this stuff. Like, what was that like learning about Boggy Creek and kind of dipping into that? Oh, my gosh. That has been that that movie for me that turned me that when I was a kid introduced me to this whole world of cryptozoology. Right. That was like the beginning of there's a like considering creatures outside of just what we accept. And that kind of imagination fuel Mm -hmm. was really valuable to me. And so as a kid, I loved it and was absolutely terrified by it. And I, what led to it was Pam Pierce, who's Charles' daughter. Mm-hmm. She's been the caretaker, I guess you could say, of his legacy for many years, fighting pirates. I mean, the work she does on a day-to-day basis, tracking down people who are out there, putting things up on burner sites and pirating things releases and selling them on ebay or whatever like she's really on top of it and has been very dedicated to her preservation of his legacy and and her core mission is just based on this isn't how dad would have wanted it this is this doesn't look how dad wanted it to be seen or heard like fans should see things as best they can be presented and she reached we got in contact when she put out a she did her own blu-ray of boggy creek a couple years ago and put it out and I had reached out to her. I can't even honestly remember the origin of our connecting, but we hit it off really fast. And we started talking about, there were some improvements that I saw that could have been made in the transfer to it on how that Blu-ray was presented. And as time went on, it, it turned into talk of doing a 4K. Okay, now she's ready to do a new scan of the film. And so we did, a 4, 4K scan, and then I went through literally frame by frame looking at blemishes, jumps, bleeds, all this stuff from oh, wow. front to back, and we cleaned, straightened, aligned, polished the whole thing, and during the process, we ended up Pam encountered in storage some footage from the making of the film, and she calls me, and she's like, Justin, you got to see this stuff. And she was just, she just got it developed and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's, this movie has been, 
locked on awful looking 10th generation videotapes for years and a terrible DVD from some unknown company forever mm-hmm. and circulating around looking terrible in this pan and scan, super cropped look. But the stories behind it, footage, you would never think. And there really isn't much footage of Pierce working. And here we are, I'm looking at outtakes from the film. I'm looking at Charles directing. I'm looking at shots of the monster that didn't get into the film because he wanted to keep it more of a mystery. He didn't want to just put it in your face as like, you know, King Kong on top of the building. He wanted it to be lurking in the woods and the shadows, quick shots and in windows and stuff. But all those shots are right there, all those trims. And I, I was just floored. And so we started talking about here again, extra incentive, similar to Boogeyman discussion earlier, mm-hmm. that um, this should be, something should be done with this. And so I cut together some of the pieces from behind the scenes. We didn't use anywhere near all of it. And there's a lot more there that we're going to do something else with eventually. But, um, and then I brought in Lyle Blackburn on commentary, who's kind of the pre- eminent cryptozoologist, especially Bigfoot historian, I guess you could say, and also historian on this film. And he did an amazing commentary. And that turned out really nice for the piece that again, blends that reality and, you know, fiction and nonfiction, kind of similar to Town That Dreaded Sundown. Mm-hmm. And, and it all came together really nicely. And that release is all Pam. There's no label associated with it. There's no Anchor Bay. There's no shot factory this is all pam and her husband and their effort over the last few years that a few of us like me lyle are lucky enough to have been in the sort of universe of to get that thing out there and it looks and sounds so incredible and the slip sleeve looks great she even had these great looking poly mailers printed up that have the boggy creek poster art in the front and the back i mean she's all in and it was an honor to be part of Awesome. That's awesome. I used to have the the really shitty uh, pan and scan DVD for years. I kept mine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the great proto found footage type type yeah. movies. Uh, that and Town the Dread- Dreaded Sundown kind of a one two. I agree. Thing. I think the Patterson Gimlin footage is like the first found footage phenomenon. And that's, yeah. you know, the Patterson Gimlin uh, that led to all the Bigfoot stuff, but this whole shot. That was um, around the same time in the seventies, right? It was. Yeah. And those guys, I mean, that footage, even though it's only, I think it's like 12 seconds long or something, those guys would take it around. Roger Patterson would take it to universities or high schools in different towns, set up a screen and a projector. He would charge admission. What a hustler. And then you're watching 12 seconds of footage followed by two hours of discussion with all these people telling and sharing stories in the crowd. And it created this cultural phenomenon that the next thing was Boggy Creek that exploded on all these drive-in screens. And that's where it all began. And And we uh, still don't have any better Bigfoot footage than that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's been some some damn good Bigfoot films, though. Like, I love Abominable. I Willow know, Creek. Exists. Willow Creek is probably Willow Creek's good. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Willow Creek exists is so good from Eduardo Sanchez. Mm-hmm. There's some good ones. Yeah. So before I turn it back over to Jay to, to ask another question, I, I saw that you've done pretty much all the, the special features and the featurettes for Oliver Stone's seminal film, JFK. Mm-hmm. 
And I just have to think, I mean, that and that film was based on a classic Jim Mars, who was an old school Texas reporter guy. And and that was something close to his his heart. I know. I just have to think you've probably got a theory about what happened with the JFK assassination. Or if you didn't before you start all that, you probably have developed something. Oh, man, that's another one. I'm such Oliver's. He's one of the great filmmakers. And I, I think it's weird that he's not often discussed in the same with the same reverence and in the same company as like a Scorsese and uh, Tarantino and these guys that everyone points to is like, this is cinema. But if you look at truly invested, all in, passion driven, exhaustively researched presentation of stories, is there any better than Oliver Stone? I mean, well, if you look at his of run, of, look at the run of films, talk radio, Salvador, Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. For me, when I was a kid, it was The Doors. That's the movie that introduced me to Oliver, and one that I still hope to that we can get re-released. One of the great Val Kilmer roles of all time. Yeah, maybe the greatest rock and roll movie of all time. I mean, what a great experience that thing is. And uh, But JFK is a movie that has done really unique things. And I gave the piece, the interview piece with Oliver on that one, the most generic sounding name. But as I was racking my brain over how to sort of encompass what this film has done, I'm like, it just is this. And I called it One Person Can Make a Difference. It's a shitty title. That's like naming your band like Metal Blast and then playing metal. But it, I really mean it that this movie, there there aren't many movies that legitimately change history. And I don't say that lightly, that in the wake of all that was presented in Oliver's film, there were committees formed in the government to dive into this case. It, it, it not only opened and released the records on stuff that had been held under lock and key for so many decades, but also it prompted investigations that otherwise never would have happened. And it's transformed the public's perception. So, so it isn't so much about the story, like the film is about the conversations that are had in the movie more, in my opinion, than the story of the trial and everything else. It's not really about that. It's about the Donald Sutherland sitting in the park and they're having the discussion where Sutherland's breaking down in like quick bullet point fashion. Here's all the ways this doesn't line up. And I'm going to yeah. explain to you what was really happening on the other side of this equation here. And it, just like all the things that Oliver has made, it's almost like it's created to, to set the table for conversation that challenges us and i had just finished working on natural born killers with him prior to doing jfk and that's another film that 100 challenges the audience it also challenges the the format of film it challenges the historical dynamic of film and in storytelling and in talking with oliver but also hank corwin editor on that who came from a music background like oliver did not want a standard editor sitting in the chair on that. He wanted something completely insane without any filters. And that's exactly what you get in it. But he pushes people. And we also had done the hand together 
for Shock Factory a couple yeah, years that ago. Was, that was his first film, right? Yep. Yep. And he was very forthcoming in that. That was the height of Michael Caine's great in that. He is. It's another un, under celebrated performance and also film. And Oliver was, when we're talking about it for that interview, he, I was amazed at how open he was. He's like, I was going through a divorce and I worked it out on, on screen. I shouldn't have been making that film at that time. I shouldn't have been doing that. That was not a safe way for me to process what I was working through. Wow. And he says, that's my one concern. And now, um, I mean, the, we, we continue working on things together. There have been other films like his JFK documentary, um, JFK Revisited, we did and did an amazing commentary on that with his historian co-pilot, Jim, Jim Eugenio, which turned out amazing. And we're on to other things now, but this Oliver train just keeps rolling and I'm rambling here, but as a final note, it's been such a treat to be part of these titles with him because as I'm talking to legends like Bob Richardson, his DP, and I mean, just all these icons around him, there's this dedication to Oliver that I've not found through any other series of films. And I've produced stuff on a bunch of Carpenter, on a bunch of whoever, everyone around Oliver shows up for him mm -hmm. and they say, I will walk wherever he points. Like I will travel through whatever jungle we need to go through because I believe in his art. It's not like this is a movie that'll put me on the page. This is a movie that will get me noticed. It's always his vision and how he wants to do this and how inclusive he is in his process. And it's been such an amazing education. To answer your question on JFK, I'm going to, I'm going to plead the fifth on that one. I don't, I don't want to throw out <laughs> any theories on it, but I will say. That's what, the correct answer. <laughs> Oliver's presentation between his, the film and the documentary, awfully damn intriguing, hard to ignore that kind of an avalanche of evidence staring you right in the face. Yeah. And, and, and even on it, uh, this special effects, the gentleman who made the, the Kennedy's body, he had access to autopsy photos and he's looking at it because he had to recreate not just the body laying on the table, which by the way is, has made its way into documentaries on Kennedy. Now those shots were so convincing. Oh, wow. Richardson told me that he's like, I'm watching this Kennedy documentary and I see my shots are cut in with scenes from the day and the Zapruder film and stuff. Like what a high compliment. Wow. But anyway, the, um, that when they were making the body, they're all just like, there's no way these wounds are made by one bullet. It's absolutely no way. And from that direction, there's no way. So it all through to this day, the mystery, I guess, remains, but the evidence is pretty overwhelming. So before we close up shop, I just had one final question and you may have already answered it in some of this discussion, but I was just curious when someone comes to you and asks you the, the most fun you've had, doing anything on a film <clears throat> what's the one that comes to your mind first um, too tough of a question well, every everything has it's kind of a weird relationship with these things because i go into them i've been so lucky to work on films that i really treasure that i love but it's kind of a love hate it's like a double-edged sword because i'm i know when i get hired for it that i'm about to spend months with it watching the film over and over and over and I'm cutting and editing and I'm frame by framing through certain scenes to find the right moments. And by the time it's done, it's almost like a breakup. 
because I spent so much time with it that I can't even bear to look at it again for a while. And that sounds maybe too romantic, but really it is that way for me. And so when I get hired, when I get the call on something that I'm super excited about, are oh, you going to, do you want natural born killers? Uh, yeah, I do. But at the same time, I'm like, fuck, now how long is it going to be before I can love that movie again, before I can go back and just settle into just watching it and, you know, taking it in like I'm used to taking it in. So it's bittersweet, no matter how good, how fun the production was. Well, we appreciate but, you for doing the Lord's work and having to watch the movie a million times. Oh, man. Even that, though. I mean, like you get familiar with things that you never would have noticed anyway, too. So it is a deeper relationship with the films. And then when you go back and eventually revisit it, which for me, maybe a few years later, not I can never watch the special features, but just watching the film again, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember the story behind that on that day. That was pretty cool. And so you do carry that stuff with you. But for me, it's kind of like, I just need to stay away from it for a little while when it's done. But they've all had some element of, I mean, being able to do the whole Chucky series, the whole Child's Play series blows my mind. That's a happy accident that happened. My brother and I used to watch the original. We had that on a dub tape with I'm going to get you sucker. And we oh, watched wow. it over That's and over. A and feature. <laughs> yeah. When we were kids. And so we can still, and we do still quote that. Um, Although I think Chucky can out trash talk all the Wayans brothers together. <laughs> <laughs> Ugly doll. Fuck <laughs> you. We still say it. We still say it all the time. That was a real treat, but I mean, dude, uh, maybe breakdown breakdown for paramount from one of Kurt my russell favorite movie. very, uh, movies. very underrated that movie. uh, yeah that and, was a movie we, that when it, whenever whenever it uh debuted on hbo it was on all the time and i remember with watching with my parents like repeated over yeah. and over and over yeah i've seen it they love it times in my lifetime did your parents love it yeah well my dad did for sure mom questionable i think she did because she loved kurt yeah oh yeah that's a movie that I'm just amazed over the years. We did it like maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've, I have yet to meet anybody who's who's not a fan. If they've seen it, they love it. That movie just hits, it checks all the boxes. And that production was incredible. Getting Kurt into the studio for, for new commentary. I'm a huge fan of his commentaries with Carpenter. Oh, yeah. And uh, when I did Escape from L.A., I was trying to get them together, but we just couldn't line it up right. I was so wanting those two to be together again. But on Breakdown, I, I got the director, Jonathan Mostow, with Kurt. And this was COVID time, so they had to sit on opposite ends of the screening room. Mm-hmm. But when Kurt shows up on set at the Paramount lot, we're all, it's just like, he's here, he's here. Like, as the president has shown up and in walks Kurt Russell. I mean, like, mind blown. And for that, uh, and he was great. That track is incredible. Mostow was great on that. It's the final interview with Martha De Laurentiis. Oh, wow. D- oh. Dino De Laurentiis' wife and, and creative partner. And she didn't even know, I don't think at that time, what was going on internally with her. And her tumor, I believe she had a brain tumor or something. And it was like weeks later, she was gone. Mm-hmm. And she was incredible. She produced Hannibal. And we spent a lot of our time outside of recording minutes with me gushing over Hannibal and how that series needs to be finished yeah. at the time. But, um, and then also there was this alternate opening for breakdown that was lost. 
And it was one of these times where I got to team up with the archive team at Paramount and, um, and they found it. They found the footage in the archive there and we were able to present it with audio and everything. And you can also listen to it with Mostow's commentary over it if you want. But to have that on the disc was really special because it's something that's kind of been rumored over time and was only really previously explored through screenshots and things on other releases from other companies. So that was exciting. So I don't know. It's hard to find, pick your favorite child. I would, I'll just point to Breakdown for today because that was an amazing Fair. experience. And I love that that was your answer because that's, I feel like that's a movie no one really knows. It was like movies I watched repeatedly. It was that one, uh, The Edge with Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. I think went underrated. And then Crazy uh, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the uh, Ravenous with Guy Pierce, which oh, is yeah. one of my favorite movies of all time. Like those yeah, that's a crazy like movie. constant rotation. <laughs> Such a good, like, I can still say he was licking me, and my mom <laughs> will crack up. And my mom hates horror movies, but she loved that movie. And she, loved that scene. <laughs> oh, that's amazing, <laughs> so, man. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so, that's gonna get... be a... go ahead. No, go I was ahead. just gonna say it, it's great to find those little things that the under celebrated films, and mm-hmm. when you get and when you bump into people who have seen them, it's such a special kinship. And um, it's being able to talk this stuff every day, it's just the biggest thrill, and so it's awesome to come on here with you guys we appreciate it and if you've seen ravenous with uh guy Pierce and david arquette follow me on instagram we can be pals uh so that's going to be a wrap on this episode be sure to follow us over on instagram uh subscribe to our youtube channel and to wherever you are listening to this podcast now if you have amazon music we have a playlist over there too featuring music and artists from the episodes we've done uh justin thank you so much for, for taking some time with us it was amazing yeah. like your career uh, astounds me i'm not jealous at all uh, but but i understand it's a lot of hard work too like I, if i had to watch uh, scott pilgrim versus the world a thousand times and edit it i probably would never <laughs> touch it again so uh, god bless you for doing that for all of us oh, we appreciate it's, it. it's <laughs> all my honor and likewise coming on here with you guys today thank you, thank you. all right Thanks, so john. i'm signing off uh, jay with john tj and justin and until next time keep it spooky